0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Rethinking H2O podcast. Today on the show, we have Nusha Ajami, who is the director of urban water policy with Stanford University's Water in the West program. Nusha is a thought leader in the water space with a decorated academic background and degrees from University of Arizona, along with a Ph.D. from University of Irvine. In this episode, Nusha provides valuable insights into three core topics. First, how cities can build resilient infrastructure through better planning and investment. Second, how policy and academia can help bring value to society. And third, we dive into the future of water innovation. We hope you enjoy this episode today, and now here's your host, Kevin Sovin. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Nusha. How are you? Can you
1: hear me?
0: I can hear you. How are you?
1: Good, good. How are you?
0: I'm doing well, thank you. So are you, uh, you're home today, working from home?
1: Yeah, so I had a meeting actually in uh, in the East Bay, and uh, which, I don't know how, how familiar you are with the Bay Area, but it was around Walnut Creek, and then afterward I figured it's better to come to the city rather than going down south and coming back. So I live in San Francisco, so gotcha. I try to avoid the long drive back and forth
0: again. I don't know the area that well, but what I do know is that, like Chicago and D.C., that the traffic is fairly miserable, no matter what way
1: you cut it. Yes, it is quite miserable. And uh, it, it is just a city, especially in San Francisco, is sort of bursting. It, And we really do not have good um, infrastructure, of so transportation infrastructure to carry all this... Uh, Extra cars and the population that lives in the city now anymore. Well,
0: you've got so, you got the trolley system, right?
1: Yeah, but it's just not it's not enough. We just don't have enough no. uh, public transportation, and people people are driving their cars. But then the you know a lot of these highways are from uh, way back when, which when we the population wasn't this many. You know, we didn't have that many cars, and there were not that many people living in the city. So it's just like, you know, you get in a city and then a city of seven miles by seven miles and it takes you like half hour to go from one end to the other.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think that's a similar trend around the country where we're seeing a lot of these burgeoning city centers that were built for populations maybe about 50 to 80 years ago. And now you have these massive booms of population starting to build on top of of this, this old infrastructure and then... All of a sudden, it's the infrastructure is dilapidating and things aren't working, or it's really crowded, and people ask why. And I mean, part of it's sort of uh, maybe the the lack of foresight with the planning, and maybe the just some of the lack of the investment in infrastructure.
1: Yep, it, yeah, absolutely. Combination of both. So,
0: yeah, and I mean yeah. that, that kind of segues in nicely where I think you know you specialize into the whole building smart cities and kind of how to, how do cities build resiliency and I, I really want to dive into that um but sure. but to start for for those of us who maybe are familiar with you and your your impressive background could you could you give us a little bit of background on on who you are kind of a little bit of like where you're from where you were born and and how that you ended up where you are today uh working in your current job
1: sure um so i'm Yusha Jami um I uh, work at Stanford University as the director of urban water policy with the Woods Institute's uh, water NOS program, and also a joint effort with um, uh, National Science Foundation's engineering research center on reinventing urban water infrastructure. And um, I am originally Iranian, uh, born and raised in Tehran, uh, which is a metropolitan city. Uh, with uh, sometimes similar uh, challenges and uh, opportunities. And uh, so I got my um, uh, early education and bachelor degree in civil and environmental engineering there. And then came to the US to pursue my uh, advanced studies. And um, that's where sort of I started more and more specializing in water and water management. Um, I uh, finished my PhD, at, uh, did a master's degree at the University of Arizona in uh, water resource management, and then did my PhD on the same topic, um, uh, civil and environmental engineering, water resource management from UC Irvine. Um, but I always had a very, so much, I had a lot of interest and uh, sort of like a knack for uh, policy and policy making and decision making and how um, sort of academic um, uh, investigations in interface with policy and decision making process so um, after my PhD after working a few years collaborating with a, with a couple of economists I end up going and working for the California's legislature as a science fellow and uh, that's where I learned about uh, policymaking and, in, and all the nitty-gritty that goes into the policymaking process and, and actually where science comes into the play um, when you go through the legislative process and how you need to engage um, in this uh, very complicated uh, multi-dimensional, interdisciplinary process um, so the, that's that's how sort of my uh, I combine that expertise with all my um, knowledge on sustainable water resource management and then, and then here I am um, um, leading a group of students and uh, uh, researchers that uh, focus on um, issues that has one foot in uh, very um, sort of um, state-of-art um, engin- engineering uh, solutions and one foot in sort of where the reality is how you can make your solutions relevant to today's problems and sort of help build communities that would be resilient and, um, uh, sustainable in the years to come.
0: That's really fascinating to hear your story coming from, from Tehran to, to all the different universities and your, your decorated degrees to where you are now. That's, that's really fascinating and awesome to hear. And, and so where you are now, you're, you're now currently the director of urban water policy, uh, the leader of water in the West. Is, is that, the The Water in the West is that the program that you just described between the the foot the talking about engineering versus reality, or could you tell me a little bit more about the Water in the West program that you work with?
1: Uh, yeah, so Water in the West is a program within the Woods Institute uh, for the Environment, um, and uh, the program is uh, focused on uh, Western water issues and uh, trying to come up with uh, practical solutions for. Uh, to build, um, to, to help the Western, uh, to, to sort of to address some of the Western water issue, challenges. And um, um, so, uh, however, the work that me and my team does is a little, goes beyond Western water uh, issues, especially because uh, we, we are sort of working in the intersection of water in the West and also this engineering research center that i mentioned um which focuses on reinventing urban water infrastructure and for that we actually focus now na- on water issues um in both part, you know in all parts of the us and also in both urban and some somehow rural areas where they interface basically and um and our sort of um, um, connecting point is uh, infrastructure and innovation.
0: Interesting. So, as you've done some more of this research and, and dove into some of the stuff that maybe sounds really good on a whiteboard, and then some of the stuff that's actually reality, what's what are some examples of how you, this 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 group you started has started to implement some some forward-thinking ideas and policies to help build some of this sustainable infrastructure, help encourage some of the this water resiliency within cities?
1: Sure. So, um, you know, in a, in a very traditional academic way, uh, the way it works is that the students are given a project or they have an interest in a the project. They work uh, and, uh, you know, do in-depth research, especially if it's our PhD students and uh, they have uh, the Know, they write a dissertation and uh, write academic papers and they leave. Um, the challenge with that is some of that knowledge, uh, sometimes it's not as relevant in the real world. And sometimes it never gets picked up because um, it doesn't end up coming forward uh, in a timely manner or it does not um, clearly defines its boundaries in a way that would be relevant to today's problems. Um, so for us, um, uh, we, we try to approach this in a different way. Um, uh, often the way we work is we always have a, um, a real, uh, underground partner. Um, it can be a utility, water utility. It can be in water agency. It can be a, you know, um, uh, sort of an organization that deals with, or, you know, um, policymaking or lawmaking or, or regulatory organization that sort of deals with day-to-day um, management of the water supplies and wastewater management. And we try to to engage with them, learn about their challenges, and try to see how we can bring in some of our existing knowledge and build tools and information or uh, sort of um, uh, decision making tools that can help uh, sort of advance these um, um, these communities in a way and for us to do that we try to get them you know we, we try to actually engage with this com- with these um, um, decision-making bodies and trying to sort of understand what kind of data do they have And then we also try to understand what kind of data can we bring to the mix, and try to see if we can use sort of big data uh, uh, ideas for making sort of um, uh, making solutions that are relevant, or actually, um, um, if they have all the data, we are trying to sort of understand what kind of solutions is relevant to them um, to help them to sort of step into the 21st century and manage their resources in a more effective way.
0: Really interesting. So for some of our listeners that may not be fully experienced with a particular water project or a water resiliency project that might address a particular community's issues, what might be an example of what a community in Northern California would consider looking at to upgrade their water infrastructure to better cope with population or to better provide water supplies? I mean, what what's an example of something like that?
1: So, um, you know, we, just for your listeners to understand, so we, we built our infrastructure, especially in the Western United States, um, uh, in a during the 20th century. And some of this infrastructure are very old or already past their, you know, um, their... Um, uh, lifespan that they were designed for, and uh, this infrastructure was also built based on the assumption that we will have, a, uh, so you know, the climate, uh, uh, climatic conditions that we had when we built them is going to last. And um, unfortunately, none of those actually are holding as much anymore. Uh, the infrastructure is aging, so they are not as efficient and effective in delivering the water to people the way they used to. Uh, because of climate change, we are having a very different climatic patterns. Um, and, uh, you know, we don't get as much snow. We don't get, we get a lot of rain. We get the rain in the different times of the year. So, uh, so the patterns have, def- the climatic patterns have definitely changed. And, um, you know, most, a lot of California depend actually on uh Imported water, which you bring water. You know, we, we think about Bay Area. Which we actually bring water from uh, parts of the Sierra Nevada. Uh, about 85% of our water comes from that, from Hetch uh, Hetchy uh, Reservoir, which is uh, um, which is uh, sort of in the Sierra Nevada. Uh, the and we depend on that water um, to survive. And um, and now a lot of uh, conversation is happening, uh, especially during this past drought, which was v- pretty intense and challenged some of our existing um, water management and water infrastructure uh, realities that we had, has made us to think, okay, so what kind of other options can be considered to make our communities more resilient in order to be able to handle future droughts, in order to be able to um, Manage population growth uh, in order to be able to have healthy ecosystem which we depend on, and um, so some of these solutions includes uh, recycling water, uh, capturing storm water and cleaning it and reusing it, um, trying to capture some of the water from the uh, you know in the house from your bathtub and uh, sinks in the kitchen and the bathroom, uh, which are which are quite clean, they're not really um, uh, there's not much bacteria or um, uh, unwanted pollutants in them, so just cleaning them and using them for um, other purposes, such as watering the lawns, or using it for um, alternative needs that we have in the house, I mean, we really we use about 40% of the water that we use is used indoors and a um, very small amount of that water is needed for our consumption, which is drinking and, um, you know, cooking. The rest of it goes to flushing toilets and showering and washing hands. And, um, you know, we don't need to flush our toilets with the cleanest, you um, and the best water we have, we don't need to flush our toilets with the drinking water, basically. So, um, so there's a lot of conversation going around, what are, our, what are the alternatives, what is it that we can do, what options can we have on the table, and how we can become a more resilient community, um, considering uh, what are our uh, water supply and demand options.
0: Interesting. And yeah, it seems like a lot of times, sometimes change only comes out of necessity. And I know Australia is a really good example of someone who was faced with a very serious water crisis. And they were some of the first adopters of using gray water and recycled water within the household for washing dis- dishes, using it as a toilet water. So I think that's a, a great example of how we can capture some of this water that's already been used and then reuse that water for other purposes that don't need the highest-grade quality water. And I think that's that's one tangible example. And, and one other thing that you, I know you, you kind of mentioned, and it, it seemed like a lot of things you were mentioning were somewhat micro-individual decisions that some people can do. But what I know, a lot of people talk about. Hey, California, it's on the ocean. It's on the Pacific Ocean. Why don't there's so much water in the ocean? Why don't they just take it, the water from there? How how is desalination looked at as a as a means of diversifying water sources? And is that is that the end all be all solution, or what? How is how is desalination looked at as a a piece of this puzzle to to help solve some of these issues? So uh, actually.
1: The- you asked a very important question which is um you know desalination um is is a solution part of a portfolio of solutions that every community has put together have, have to have put together um so uh think about uh, california as you go from north to south east to west you have very diverse communities with with the um, um you know very different opportunities available to them. So, um, and some of these communities, including some of the central California communities, they actually uh, need to look at desalination as one of their options, because there's not much really can be done for them. They don't, they're not connected to any of these big imported water systems. Uh, they have already uh, harvested all different kind, all the water that they could to meet their demand um, in the communities and um, and they have tried to preserve as much water as they can. So desalination stays as one of the options that potentially can help them to um, expand their water supply portfolio and help them to meet their future demand. Now, um, is desalination, um, a, a, you know, a, an essential? or a priority for other regions in California? Maybe not, right? So each community has to basically look and see what options they have available to them and then build a portfolio of solutions that are um, sort of uh, economically, socially, and environmentally relevant to that region.
0: I like that, and I think that's a really good way to phrase it in that these are all different parts of the portfolio, the solutions, and. And even further to that, every community is different, and what works in in Northern California is not necessarily what will work in the southeast of Florida. And every community has their own unique relationship with water, which forces them to really have a very fine-tuned discussion and analysis of, well, how do we diversify our our water supplies. How can we grow with, how can we have a growing population and make sure we can have a, a thriving and robust water infrastructure and water supply to, to meet the growing population of the future generations?
1: Absolutely. And, you know, another very important thing is um, we often talk in about talk about supplies and we rarely talk about demand because everybody assumes that demand will continuously grow. And that is a, that's not a correct assumption because, and, and actually California and many other regions actually ha, has um, um, uh, shown um, the fact that this is not a correct assumption. Um, you know, a lot of these communities that we have in California, Southern California is a great example of this, actually. They have, they, their population has almost doubled in the past um, uh, few decades, but their water, water use have not changed at all um you know technology has definitely brought along um a lot of improvement in the way we um, use water uh, you know the toilets that we have today are are not i use like a quarter of the water that they used to use in the you know in the past um you know the shower heads are more efficient the dishwasher is more efficient the washing machines are more efficient and um, you know the fascinating part of this is a lot of these changes very came about because of the um, energy um, uh, reform that we had in California and other parts of the country. Um, you know a lot of these uh, appliances that we use in the home in our home, they use a lot of water, and because they use a lot of water, they end up using a lot of energy. So when the energy um, um, the sort of uh, change and uh, uh, the policy change in the energy sector was happening um some of these um, uh, some of the strategies and um, and uh, ideas to save more energy uh, ended up helping save water as well that's, so,
0: that's really interesting and I and I know in some of your pieces you you talked about the demand versus supply management, and I think that brings up a good point where we've talked a lot about managing some of the supplies and developing smart cities. But I think just as much as we're talking about the supply side, it's important to, to address that demand side, and that demand can be changed. And I know we live in this world where everyone needs to have a white picket fence and an air conditioner and a TV and all the riches, and that's all what everyone wants. It's it's the I guess the quote unquote American dream, but in, a, in addition to that, I mean, I think there are, there's ways that we can look at how to curb human consumption patterns. And that can be through diet, dietary patterns that could be through different parts of policy of in, in, in invoking different, whether it's a tax on a particular good or even, um, I, I'd love to, to get your take on, on some of the, the agriculture and, and like even the almond farming, uh, in California, which as I know is a, is a huge kind of topic of discussion. But I think that whole that demand discussion and how to influence it is something that I'd love for you to kind of dig into a little bit more and how can that be something from a policy side that, that can be addressed further. Sure.
1: Um, so uh, I think, again, like one of the things that we, um, one of the topics that we focus on a lot in my team is actually demand, um, identifying demand, identifying demand patterns trying to forecast and predict where the demand is going in the future partly because it's very important when you want to make decisions about supply um, augmentation so if i know where the demand is going maybe i don't need to build the next big dam maybe building a smaller recycling plant would would do for the city or the community that we, we live in um so um so demand within the urban areas is definitely um, something that uh, needs to be looked at in a smarter and more um, thoughtful way, um, and uh, sort of mo- and the community, the community and utilities sort of need to move away from this concept that demand will be continuously growing, and they need to constantly uh, build more supply to meet future demand. Now. Agriculture is a totally different story. Um, of course, there's a lot of conversation around agriculture using a lot of water, and um, and they do. However, um, there's a big difference between use um, and consum- uh, and consume. And a lot of the water that agriculture uses ended up going back to the environment. Um, the only challenge is it the quality of it will be degraded before ending up ending. Back in the environment, and uh, um, and also you need to think about the fact that why do we grow all these things that we grow? The demand is still within the within the city limits, right? We want all these things, we want these produce um, or all the products that comes from agriculture, so. Um, you brought up a very important point about dietary change and um, and trying to be more mindful of what we eat and what we do. And we use a lot of water in gen- in producing a lot of products, such as such as almonds. Um, but then you know these products are sold in the cities and um, and people consume them. So um, I think it is a it's a very complex a topic. Agriculture is an extremely complex topic. Um, I've heard many times people say, Oh, cities are, and, you know, they're just a very small part of this equation. And, um, as, long as agriculture saves water, we're going to change. but the reality is we, the cities are using all the products that comes from agriculture. So if you are less wasteful and more mindful, uh, maybe there would not be as much demand for some of these products. So so um, so it's a very complex issue. To yeah. Be honest with you.
0: yeah, I know that's, that's a complex issue. So interesting to hear your take on it. And and I I, I was further reading in one of your articles and a little bit of a change of topic, but kind of in light of all this stuff is that you, you had an article called Path to Water Innovation. And I saw a, a, one of the lines you had said is that the water industry is, is suffering from an innovation deficit. And I, I wanted to kind of hear your take on sort of what you meant by that and, and sort of how people in the water industry can maybe uh, learn from your insight on this.
1: So we did a study a couple of years ago. We looked at the uh, water inno- innovation patterns in energy sector and compared it to the water sector and uh, you can quickly notice that um, there's, there are a lot more. We use patents as an indicator to measure innovation. And very quickly, you realize uh, the number of patents that are filed in the water, for the water sector is much smaller than uh, Uh, the energy sector and and by energy sector i mean the clean energy sector and um and uh, the amount of money that goes to the water sector for innovation is a lot less than the energy sector it's a very complex issue again but um you know there, there are multiple things that are impacting the water sector one um you know water sector uh, we have, you know, for the energy sector to get to that point, there was a crisis uh, in California, um, lots of blackouts um, in the uh, late 90s and early 2000s. And there was a sort of like a, a significant change of the way we approach energy and energy consumption and energy management and generation. And that led into a a, a sort of like a revolution in that sector, which we have not experienced in the water sector, partly because I don't think people really realize where the water is coming from, where it's going, what needs to happen. Another thing we identified was we really pay very little for our water, and it's very hard to um, uh, sort of – and the way the industry works is – you basically pay as you use, and um, most of that money goes into managing our existing water water infrastructure, and there's not enough left to invest in, um, you know, new and innovative technologies. And um, and another thing is, um, uh, you know, regulations and market changes can definitely incentivize and catalyze change in a sector, and and we haven't had much of that going on in the water sector except since the 1970s when we had the Clean Water Act. Um, so um, so there's a combination of issues, and also there isn't much um, uh, because the water sector, the water is cheap and we don't um, pay that much for our water. And the utilities don't necessarily have very deep pockets. Uh, There's not much money um, for, um, you know, to buy and you know, test new and innovative solutions just because you are interested to see how they would work. Um, So there's not much money going to R&D and um, uh, sort of innovation. Um, So these. These are some of the items that be identified as uh, some of the hinders to um, water innovation interesting um, and,
0: yeah and I think it, it, it's it, this uh, really this is sort of a whole nother can of worms of is is water a human right and then kind of further in that discussion of is water properly valued and whether for that's sure. from a social perspective but also a financial perspective where people pay energy bills and we, we also have a water bill but looking at how utilities are strapped for cash and strapped for money and then looking at sort of how people pay for water do you think in some ways is is water undervalued as a as a, as a as a commodity on the on the market or is it something that's maybe not really given the the importance that it, it should or what's your thoughts on that
1: Yeah I think water is certainly undervalued and uh, you know depending on which community. so you know we have so many different utilities right water is a very fragmented industry and um and you know just in california we have about two thousand more than two thousand water and um, utilities um, small and from very very large to very very small like you know two person um utility uh who sort of manages a well in a community and um there's such this fragmentation and um, um, sort of geographical fragmentation is definitely not helping the sector um and you know I, I I always often hear when we talk about the price of water, I often hear that um, uh, you know it's gonna impact access to water for some of the smaller uh, less um uh, prosperous communities, but the reality is that bigger water utilities who have the means and capacity to understand their, um, their needs, to uh, invest, uh, to, to kind of make sure they are, you know their system is operated well and managed well, they do end up raising their rates and having rates that are a little bit better and more reflective of this resource that they're providing to their customers. Um, As you go down the list and you get to this medium sized to smaller utilities, that is where the problem starts because these utilities don't really have the manpower and the capacity or the expertise to to fully evaluate their system, um, to constantly um, optimize their their operation and also make sure they are um, managing it in the most effective way let alone to invest in it so um so you know because of that diversity you'll see some communities do end up investing in innovative solutions or try to bring some change to their sector Uh, but that's not very common and those big utilities are not are just a handful compared to the other ones and Um, Unfortunately, what happens is a lot of these smaller communities, if they don't have the capacity, they end up not being able to manage their water resources in a very um, effective way. And actually, some of these small uh, like disadvantaged communities end up not having access to clean water um, the the way that we in the big cities do. Um, and I don't, I don't find that to be very, um, um, very uh, equitable, you know, um, and I don't think we are really helping those communities by not letting um, these rates to increase or change. And sometimes they end up paying for bottled water, which is much more expensive than a tap water, in order to meet their daily needs.
0: Yeah, I mean, we see every single day in the U.S. USA. There's boil water alerts, and there was the whole example uh, a year and a half ago with with Flint, Michigan, which is a whole. We could do a whole podcast just on that. But I think that that was an example of of a municipality that was was forced to make a decision. Granted, they they made a bad decision on trying to cut costs, but yeah. uh, these small and medium municipalities definitely struggle from a budgetary standpoint. So I think. I, you, know, you you've got to sympathize for some of these small medium municipalities that have to to provide for these people with shrinking budgets and then when they have to raise the rates sometimes it's the people in the, the lower end communities that are forced with having to to pay these higher rates
1: yep. you're absolutely right I mean you know we actually strap ourselves in these very um, you know in California we have a few laws and, uh, and propositions that does not allow, to uh, have um, um, you know, lifeline rates, which actually in the energy sector helped a lot, because uh, you know, um, when people if people uh, are you know below, um, they make below certain uh, margin depending on where they live, they can have access to these lifeline rates, which are much lower, and. Um, and they, they end up being, uh, you know, more affordable for these, for the people who need them. And um, and on the other hand, we are actually maintaining our systems very well because we have, the utilities have money. So think about, this is for energy sector. Now think about water sector in California, who lifeline lane, um, rates are not, um, they're not directly um, prohibiting them, but... The way that the proposition has been written, um, it's it's very difficult to set up lifeline rates. So that means that the utility cannot do that because so they don't want to raise rates because they don't want to leave some of the community behind, right? They can't have lifeline rates, and also at the same time they can't maintain their system in the shape because they don't have money, right? So it's basically a it's a broken financial system that's not really helping and really has hurt the uh, water utilities, um, especially the medium and small utilities that with, with limited capacity.
0: Yeah, it's a really serious problem. And it kind of segues into my next question where I know financing in every industry is a, is a big topic, but especially financing in the water industry is something that is, is a really important topic today and and moving forward to be able to implement the proper infrastructure for the growing cities to actually pay for a lot of the the water leaks and all the infrastructure that's dilapidating every day. So could you dive into a little bit about maybe a little bit of how you've seen financing in the water industry change over the years and and what what do you see as maybe some of the, the financing opportunities for these, these different uh, whether it be water municipalities or or different uh, players within the water sector.
1: Sure. So as part of that innovative uh, the, the study that we did on water innovation, one of the one of the things we identified was um, water sector really lacks access to innovative financing mechanisms uh, in order to promote um, uh, innovation change. So think about, you know, we still, in the water sector, we, we are still using a lot of the traditional um, financing mechanisms, such as, um, you know, loans and grants and um, and um, the obligation bonds and, uh, you know, general obligation bonds, revenue bonds. Um, and um, and while those are definitely important and essential, um, and actually a lot of our infrastructure, our water infrastructure was built based on... Um, some of the uh, you know federal and state money that was put toward these um needs now um we live in 21st century now uh, there's not much um uh, money co- uh, coming from the state or the federal government especially to maintain our existing aging infrastructure and also the infrastructure we need uh, it's very very different from what we need, what we sort of uh, uh, needed in the last century. Now, uh, talking about gray infrastructure, uh, gray water systems, think about uh, recycling, reuse, think about conservation and efficiency, think about green infrastructure. All these are part of the uh, sort of uh, 21st century water. Um, portfolio and I call it water portfolio because not just supply it's, it's like everything right and um, and for them there's no real uh, financing mechanism in the books that would uh, enable them and help implement some of these solutions so um, we actually what we did in our uh, research was we actually went back again to the energy sector and tried to see after the after the the um, uh you know the reform that happened uh how the energy sector sort of fueled its um um its, its sector and where the which kind of financing mechanism they used to implement their uh, needs um and the new solutions that were on the books that were not traditionally funded um and uh, we actually ended up um uh, identifying some of these solutions, and then we try to understand which ones are fully, which ones are um, applicable in the water sector. And we developed uh, an innovative uh, financing m- framework um, for for that purpose. Um, basically, we identified nine. Sorry, four different elements that are essential in promoting innovation and access to funding. One. Was uh, as I mentioned earlier, regulations and markets, economic and economic incentives. They actually create uh, uh, an opening for innovation. Um, I mentioned Clean Water Act. Uh, think for if you want something more, you know, to today's need. Think about renewable energy portfolios uh, or renewable portfolio standard, which actually helped diversify energy sector. Right. Uh, so um, so that was very important. The second item that we had in our list of solutions, uh, elements that are needed was, um, uh, was basically the uh, uh, funding, establishing a, very, a funding source, you know, end user fees, venture capital, uh, some source that can be tapped into uh to build the infrastructure we need bonds um you know there's a list of items that can go in there and then from there you need distribution pathways distribution pathways are basically the way that you can distribute this money between the stakeholders Uh, so uh, you know grants and loans and tax credits and rebates but also think about um you know, the uh, ways that you can engage customers and uh, at the end use um, to implement some of these solutions that are at their end and provide some sort of cost sharing opportunity. And um, the next one was uh, uh, and and the most important one also among this elements that we identified was, some of the innovative governance structures that was put in place in the energy sector, which were very relevant to the water sector. For example, uh, net metering. In the energy sector, that really enabled um, uh, the sector to work with community members to implement um, solar panels on their roofs, right? So you could actually see, uh, you could stop and generate electricity yourself, or sell it back to the grid, or take it from the grid. Um, So that was really an enabler in the energy sector. Um, uh, Other things that happened were kind of like, you know, the energy service companies that were uh, end-to-end companies that would allow uh, people to, uh, these companies basically worked with people from, um, you know, identifying projects that can be implemented. For example, in a neighborhood, 10 people wanted to implement uh, uh, solar, they want to put solar panel on their roofs. They would put these 10 people together, they would aggregate them. And then they would go out to the market and see if they can find 10 investors who are interested to put money into this. So they would they would put those monies together, so av- they would aggregate funds. And then they would create a connection between these two, while decreasing the risk of um, investment. And uh, these kind of innovative um, governance structures were truly uh, important to for uh, the change that happened in the energy sector. And we think it's truly important for the if if we want to ever, um, you know, um, change the water sector for uh, and implement some of these distributed water solutions and innovative water solutions. Um, so, yeah, go ahead, that, please.
0: Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, considering not only the fact that it, it takes a lot of water to create the energy, which is is a whole nother topic in the water energy nexus, but water and energy are, are very similar in, in the being utilities that we use and consume really every moment of every day within our households and our daily lives. and. It the, the financing and all the discussion and all of these different means of making that work is, if anything, one of the most critical discussions and critical aspects of our society moving forward. Because if we can't continue to build the proper infrastructure around our, our growing needs, then I mean it, there's there's got to be a breaking point somewhere where something happens. But it, I don't know if it takes a, an Armageddon or some sort of uh, dev... Uh, Armed some sort of D Day to for something to happen, but I would know, hope that more proactive discussion and DOT leaders like yourself continue to have some positive impact on policy that can get us moving in the right direction.
1: Um, that's the hope, right? That's the the hope is that you know, honestly, every drought that happens in uh, or every flooding event that happens, it, you know, these are disasters, but there are also opportunity points, right? Think back and see, is that what, how we want to move forward? Is that how we want our cities to look like? Uh, what, what we do not do right, and how can we build cities that are much more resilient, that can um, stand future flooding and uh, fires, that can have, uh, you know, uh, more sustainable, how they can use their water more effectively. These are the questions that we have to ask ourselves. And use every one of these uh, natural disasters as an opportunity to build and rebuild things as cities and communities that are uh, belongs to this century.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then, um, unfortunately it does take disasters to, to move humans and I, but I do think that 2017 was a very eye-opening year and I, I mean I did see that it was the the most. Uh, economic damage that's ever been done, and ever recorded, uh, between all the three hurricanes last year and all the wildfires. So I think it's it as far as whether you believe in climate change or not, or whether whatever your stance is on a lot of these things, that the the weather patterns continue to impact our daily lives, and we can't ignore this. And every city needs to, and every person. Needs to not only prepare themselves, but cities and every asp, every business and every city really needs to be asking ourselves these questions. And that's that's really our our hope here with with these podcasts and and communicating with with yourself. Who, who truly is, is such a such an honor and and, and privilege to, to have this discussion with you. Um, you you really are a, a wealth of knowledge with all this. And I uh, thank you for for your time. I know this is is going over about forty seven minutes now. So don't want to take too much more of your time, but for for our listeners that are interested in learning more about you or if they're interested in, in kind of maybe reading some of your work, um, how, how might they go about uh, finding out more about the, the Water in the West and some of your work?
1: Um, uh, you know, we have a website, uh, waterinthewest.stanford.edu, and uh, we have uh, multiple topics uh, and, uh, and, you know, research areas that we work on. And if they are specifically interested on, in the work that we do uh, in the urban water group, um, they can definitely click on the urban water program and learn more. Uh, we also have uh, some work around water energy nexus, which also uh, is available there. And uh, Or they can reach me at uh, newsha, N-E-W-S-H-A, at stanford.edu, and we'll be happy to engage um, and work with anyone who's interested on any of these topics.
0: That is really awesome, and thank you for, for being such a wealth of knowledge and help to the industry. And um, I know our listeners are really excited to, to hear this and hopefully continue to, to learn more from you. So from the bottom of my heart and all our listeners, we thank you and uh, hope you have a a great rest of your day and uh, hope to talk to you soon.
1: Thank you, Kevin. It was a pleasure.
0: Thank you.